0: Uh, last week, pa- pa- Paul finally got around to to revealing the ultimate um, cause of the divisions within the the, the church there at Corinth. You remember they have a uh, several sin problems, but one of the first ones that he's addressing here is the the issue of division, and and he finally revealed the root issue, the root cause, and it was due to the carnal attitudes and actions of the believers. And that might sound strange if you weren't here last week, but you know they they were truly born again, uh, believers they they have the spirit dwelling within them they're they're it's just that they're being governed by the flesh um, so they're they're fleshy they're carnal and so Paul pointed out the symptoms that he was seeing envy and strife, the divisions those were all evidence of carnality in the church and it's Truly, the wisdom of the world that that elevates um, men and their work, and they were doing that. They were elevating men and their and their work. And Paul made it clear that that uh, they were just workers, they were just servants. They were working in God's field, and they're they're not to be elevated. In fact, if you just look back at verses five through eight, just to sort of recap and also set up today's passage, he says in verse five, "Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos?" but ministers through whom you believe. The word literally means servants or busboys, right? They, they were really just nothing. And, and Paul is trying to offer some encouragement and motivation uh, here as he goes past this. In fact, in verse 6, he says, I planted, uh, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So, so neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. I mean, we're just, we're just nothing. Ultimately, God did it all. And then he says in verse eight, now he who plants and he who waters are one and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. It doesn't matter that they had sort of different ministries, Paul planted and Apollos watered, but ultimately they were working on the same thing. They were one and they would each be rewarded according to their own labor. And that really sets up the passage today. Paul is wanting to move forward now and provide some encouragement, some uh, motivation uh, to the carnal believers in Corinth to contribute to the work of God because their divisions were certainly not contributing to the work of God, were they? They were tearing it down, uh, even hindering the building that God was trying to build here. And in our passage today, Paul is going to address a very, very important subject. I hope you're able to stay with me today. Because it concerns the the future judgment of the believer's works. That's the title of the sermon today, the judgment of the believer's works. And the future judgment of believer's works is a judgment to see whether uh, they are worthy of reward. And for Paul, that was Paul's greatest motivation for ministry, which is why he's passing it on to the Corinthians. He was motivated by, by that. Now, listen, to be motivated by reward isn't necessarily a bad thing because for Paul and for his ministry, the ultimate objective was for the glory of God. You got to think about it like this. The Lord desires to reward the work of his faithful saints. That is what he wants to do. He's hoping to do that. Uh, And so uh, for Paul, his greatest desire was to stand before Jesus and hear those words that we all want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Um, And that's an appropriate motivation. Paul wrote this to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says there. I'm pressing forward for the, the, the prize. That's what he desired, the Lord's highest reward. That is a worthy ambition and one which demonstrates our grateful love to him. And that was Paul's greatest motivation. In fact, let me take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if I may. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just turn there briefly, a short right-hand turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll look at verse 9 it says this, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. What's our aim? What's, what's our goal? To be well-pleasing to Him. That's Paul's motivation. And in verse 10, uh, we'll, we'll actually look at it later. I'm going to skip it for the moment, but that's the, the verse that actually talks about the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll get to in a moment. I'm going to take you down to 14 because I'm looking at the motivation. Look at 14. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. So you have um, the, the, the motivation to just want to please him, and then it's Christ's love for us that compels us to want to please him. Do you see the motivations there? And then in verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live should live, get this, no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So you see what takes place is that he died ultimately so that we no longer live for ourselves. That's what we used to do, right? We used to just live for ourselves. You live for number one. You look out for number one. But now you've died to yourself. It's Christ who lives in you. And so now you live uh, to his ends. It's, it's his glory you're seeking. It's his desires. And that, that was Paul's motivation. The motivation is to please Christ and to receive the highest reward from him now a couple things to note on this. this um, judgment that I'm talking about is not God's judgment on sin. I want to make that extremely clear to all of you. Believers in Christ will not face condemnation uh, because Romans 8:1 tells us there's no condemnation in those who um, are in Christ Jesus. But Paul, when he writes to the Colossians in chapter 2 verses 13 to 14, even describes it more specifically. look what he says and you." being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The reason there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is because the the document that condemns you The handwriting of requirements has been taken out of the way. In fact, it's been nailed to the cross. There are no further charges that will be brought against you. You've been justified. You've been declared not guilty. Praise the Lord for that. And that's why Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. No one can bring a charge against you. No one can say, well, you did this. Satan wants to do that. He wants to constantly accuse the brethren. That's what, that's his job. He has only that job, right? Is to sort of distract you and accuse you. But listen, you will not face any kind of judgment on sin. That judgment has passed. It's been accomplished on the cross. But there are other judgments that are referred to in Scripture, and I just want to mention them so that you are able to differentiate between these. There is a self-judgment spoken of in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one. 31. So, obviously, we'll be getting to it at some point in our study, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one, 31. And it, it speaks about judging ourselves, right? That we take care to observe our lives and how we're living them. We self-judge. Then maybe we'll avoid some chastening by our heavenly father, right? Which is painful. Maybe we'll avoid that if we're careful to self-judge, self-evaluate, kind of like what we did today before we took communion, right? We self-examine our hearts. That's the idea. It's a self-judgment spoken of in that passage. There's also a judgment upon Israel that's spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 20. There is a judgment on the nations in Matthew 25, where Jesus uh, separates the sheep from the, the goats, there's also a judgment in Jude 6, which we covered not too long ago when we went through the, the, the letter to, of Jude. There speaks about the judgment of, of Satan and the demons. And then probably the most well-known one, Revelation 20, speaks of the great white throne judgment, which is a, a judgment upon all unbelievers. But this judgment, the judgment I'm mentioning to you today, is mentioned in two other places in addition to the the passage of scripture we're into in today. If you want to write them down, I encourage you to do that. You can look up them up later. You find them in Romans fourteen ten and 2 Corinthians five ten, where we were just were a minute ago. In fact, we'll we'll look at that verse in a bit. Both of those passages mention the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. That phrase is in both. And, and and first, I want to address, why is it of Christ? Why is there a judgment seat where Christ sits at the head? Why is it His judgment? Well, if you remember our study in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 5, verse 22, I have the verse for you, just to remind you. It says, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Do you remember that? So, So, the Father's not the one doing the judging. He's actually given that job to the Son. It's the, ju- the son that will uh, judge, and he'll even judge at this judgment seat of Christ. Now, that phrase judgment seat is, in the Greek, bema. Bema. It's a, a platform or a tribunal. Uh, but more specifically, probably carried with it the idea of that raised platform, which would have been the awards platform at the Olympic ceremonies, which were just outside of Corinth, where the, uh, the winner or winners would ascend up that bema, seat up the platform to receive their their you know wreath or whatever it was that they they were rewarded for their efforts. Here's the question then. So you have a, a judgment seat of Christ. What is Jesus judging here? Well, let me tell you what he is not judging. Let me start that way. He is not judging contrary to popular belief your good and your bad deeds. It is not as if your good and your bad things have uh, perpetually gone into sort of this, this uh, little weight and measure thing, right? And he's this balance and he's balancing them out. And, and he's written the list of those that are maybe sort of in balance upon a, uh, a, a document. And he's put that in the hands of Peter and Peter's sitting at the gate with that letter. You've all heard this, right? And then you go up to the gate. First of all, why is Peter always at the gate? You know what Peter probably is? He's probably at the feet of Jesus worshiping him. I doubt he's sitting at the gate. But anyway, that's a common perspective that there's a list and it, it kind of tells you're good and you're bad. And ho- hopefully your good out, outweighs your bad and you'll come in and, and, and maybe this is what Jesus is doing. He's sort of judging your good and your bad. And so maybe if you have too many bad things, you'll have to go do some more works before you get into the good. Um, then there's the idea of it's, it's for um, he'll, he's judging you for unconfessed sins. As if when you become a believer, you've got to stop and take out a pen and paper, and you've got to go through and list all the sins you've ever committed in your life. Could you imagine that? I would still be writing, right? I mean, there's just, I, there's no end. Um, it, that is not the idea. In fact, it, 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 it misunderstands the whole issue of confession to begin with. Confession doesn't really have anything to do with forgiveness. Confess, the Greek word homologeo, means to say the same thing. It means to agree with. And so, when we're told to confess our sins to God, we are agreeing with God that we are sinners. That is all that is. I agree that I am a sinner. Not that I agree that I have made all these specific sins and now let me list them. You are just agreeing with the the blanket fact that you are a sinner in need of saving, in need of forgiveness. And so, Jesus has died for those sins, past, present, and future. Does that make sense? You don't have to worry that that, that you've failed to confess some past uh, sin. That is an accusation by Satan. Don't uh, entertain those thoughts some think this judgment is, is over the sins that you've committed after you were saved, okay? So you become saved, and yeah, all my sins were forgiven, but then if I, if I sin after I'm saved, well, certainly God's going to judge that. Now, let me tell you, that is a view that the Catholics perpetuate, that once you're, you're saved, um, and, and that's, by the way, by infant baptism, that has regenerated you, and now you're sort of in that regenerated state, but you can go along the path of life and you can commit a venial sin which will kind of sort of bring you back down into that middle state and you have to continue to make sure you're staying on the path of good works and god forbid you can you you know you commit a mortal sin the mortal sin knocks you all the way back down you're unregenerate again and now it's going to take even more it's going to take penance it's going to take the prayers it's going to take confession and all these things just to get you back up to that middle state where then you have to continue to do good works so then the afterlife there, then hopefully, hopefully your good has outweighed your bad and, and you are able to be purified. We'll talk about purgatory in a bit and, and then receive salvation. That is not the view here. In 1 John 2, 12, John writes this, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Period. That's it. Full stop. Your sins are forgiven you. You will not be judged, believer, uh, regarding your sins. So wipe that out of your head. So the question is, what is Jesus judging here, right? What is he judging? Well, let me take you to Revelation twenty-two, twelve, 12. The very last book of the whole Bible here, Revelation 22, Jesus himself speaking says, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. That's the last book of the Bible. That's the last, one of the last words of Jesus. I'm I'm coming quickly, and I'm bringing my reward, and I'm going to reward those according to His work. Now, that is the reference to the Bemisit judgment. That judgment will take place after the rapture of the church, so after Jesus uh, comes to take His church off uh, to be with Him, but before His second coming. In fact, if you get his, the, the rapture of the church in the second coming confused, go back to the beginning of the year and listen to the sermon I had on, on, gave on the rapture. That will help clear those things up. What you are waiting for, believer, what's the next prophetic thing on the timetable for you? We're waiting for Jesus to take us to be with him. We're not waiting for the return of Christ. The reason being, we're gonna be with Christ when he returns. Does that make sense? When you get to Revelation 19, when he comes back to rule here on earth, we are with him. Which means we have got to have gotten to him before that, right? So Jesus comes to take us to be with him, and in that interim period where we're with him before he returns, there is this judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat. It's a rewards platform, and every believer will be there. Which means every believer is going to be rewarded at, on some level, which is pretty encouraging. Now, let me take you to Second Corinthians five ten. We were there in a moment, but I'll, I'll just put the scripture up for you as well. We skipped the verse, but this is one of the passages that speaks about the judgment seat of Christ. It says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. All right, there's there's the verse. So the things that you will receive according to that passage are the rewards for your labor here on earth. And some will receive more praise than others. Uh, But listen, all are saved. All that will be there will be saved. So as we look to chapter three, I know we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, Paul is transitioned from his analogy of uh, agriculture, of being a, a field and being, you know, the one who plants and the one who waters to an analogy of a building. If you go to verse nine, we looked at this last week, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. All believers are a building, a, a structure. And all believers are building. Does that make sense? So you are the building, but you're also building the building. You're the structure, but you're also building the structure. But we're all building. We're not all using the same materials, but we all will be judged according to the materials that we used. And that's the idea of the passage today. That's the idea of the judgment. And let's look at it today. Let's read our passage. We're in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 17. Let's read it. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you for the opportunity to hear from you, to hear the words of the divine one. And Lord, we do pray for the illumination by the Spirit, Lord, that you would reveal uh, and illuminate this passage to us, to our hearts, to our minds, that we might understand what takes place, Lord, that we really might have a clear picture of what we have to look forward to. It's not something to be scared of, but to look forward to. It's something that should motivate us. And so, Lord, uh, just help us to see these things clearly uh, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here in this passage, Paul is going to discuss five aspects of the work of the believers on earth. So we'll have sort of five points. And the first one comes here, point one, is the master builder, which is seen in verse 10. The master builder. Paul calls himself that. Let's look at it. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Now on the surface, this verse may seem like Paul is boasting, right? I'm the master builder. You guys are all just the uh workers, but me, I'm the master builder. That might seem like what he's saying there, but let me take you to the Greek word master builder. It is architecton. Architecton, what English word would you uh think that we derive from that? Well, it's obviously architect, isn't it? He is the uh architect. And he is more than just the planner. In fact, uh, that word carried with it back then the idea of a builder as well, that not only did he plan the building, but he participated in building the building. And he says that this capability was given to him according to the grace of God, which was given to me. That's what Paul says. In fact, he calls himself a wise master builder, but that was even due to God's grace. Because Paul has already declared earlier that neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God gives the increase, right? He was making himself lower there. Paul is not bragging here. He has actually given God the glory. It's according to the grace of God, which was given to me. In fact, Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he writes these words, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Do you see what he's saying there? Right? God's grace was, was toward me. He was so great. I mean, I am what I am. I'm just right? He, he, he thought he was the chief of sinners. I am what I am, but because he gave me this grace, boy, I labored more abundantly than, than everyone. But then even that wasn't me. That was according to the grace of God. Do you see what he's saying? So It's not a boasting thing. He's saying, I, I mean, that was just all God's grace. God's grace given to me just allowed me, propelled me to just want to labor abundantly for him. He told the Ephesians later that he had become a minister according to the gift of grace of God that was given to him. I mean, he considered himself less than the least of all the saints. So he's not not taking credit here. Please don't misread this. He's not boasting. He laid the foundation in Corinth, didn't he? According to the grace of God. And he did it as a wise, sophos, skillful master builder. He was a, a, a strategist. He was a wise master builder. Paul never entered a city without a plan, right? He always had a, Uh, A pattern. In fact, if you go through the book of Acts and read, we don't have time to go recap that today, but just look at the strategy uh, from the book of Acts that Paul had. I mean, you definitely see the pattern, don't you? When he entered the city, what's the first thing he did? He went to the Jewish synagogue, didn't he? And there he shared the scriptures, there he gave the gospel, and there he had Jewish believers, Jewish brethren, join him in the work of ministry that he would then take to the Gentiles. And then he would take it to the Gentiles in that city, and he would have Gentile converts, and there you would have the foundation of the church. You have Jew and Gentile, strong roots, deep foundation, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That was his pattern. He He was strategic. He knew what he was doing. Now, as the planner and the builder of the foundation, you definitely get a picture different of what you see today. There was nobody sitting in the home office calling the shots. Paul was not dialing up Jerusalem to talk to James, right? And say, all right, where do I go next? That one's done. Right, Thessalonica. Okay, got it. I'm on my way, right? Paul planned the next step, and then he went there, and then he built. There's no one just sitting back calling the shots, a lot like we see today. Everyone was a worker. Everyone was a builder. All of the apostles did that. In fact, after Paul came and laid that foundation, what's he say in verse 10? Another builds on it. Another came and built the foundation, built on the foundation that Paul had laid. Now, remember from our study before in in, in John, that word another, um, there's two words for another, right? Alas means another of the same kind, and heteros means another of a different kind. Which one do you think is used here? It's alas, another of the same kind, right? Another worker of, uh, of the gospel, right? Another builder, Apollos. Apollos is that builder. He came and he built upon the foundation there in Corinth that, that Paul had laid. Remember, in Ephesus, the one that came, the other, was was Timothy. But here in Corinth, it's Apollos. And the foundation, essentially, is Jesus, as we'll see in a few moments, but it's the doctrines, it's the principles of belief uh, and practice, um, and, and everyone else is building upon that. But that's what the apostles laid. Now, let me just, a side note, some think that this passage strictly refers to uh, pastors, teachers, e- evangelists. Let me just say this, I would agree with that on a primary sense, that it is true the pastors and the teachers are building up the doctrine upon the foundation that has been laid. But when you read this passage, you read verse 10, it says, let each one take heed how he builds on it. You read verse 13, it says, each one's work will become clear. Each one's work will be tested by fire. I think the context makes it clear that there's a broader application in mind. We are not all building upon the, the, the foundation to the same degree. But we all are building upon it because we all have a ministry. And because we do, we need to be very careful how we build upon it. That's what he ends verse 10 with, right? Everyone, let take heed, each one, how he builds on it. Why? Because the foundation is Jesus Christ, and we cannot be too careful with that. And that's the second aspect in verse 11, the foundation. You first have the master builder in verse 10. Here, the aspect is the foundation. Look at verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, why Paul was a master builder whose primary task was to lay the foundation, I think it's clear that you've got to make this distinction. He didn't design the foundation, okay? He laid the foundation but he didn't design it, because the foundation of biblical Christianity is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not a man-made invention. Jesus Christ is not um, an imagination of someone's mind, right? Jesus Christ is a real figure in history. He is the Son of God, and he is the foundation of biblical Christianity. It's also not our ethics, Christian ethics, or morality. It's not our history. It's not our traditions. It's not the the moral teachings of Jesus or sort of the uh, sentimental love and the good works. No. He says, no other foundation can anyone lay. That is it. The foundation is Jesus Christ, and that is so important. Uh, That is indisputable, but we still seem to mess this up, right? Some think that the church is built upon, Peter, right? And the apostles. And they take that largely from Matthew 16. And you don't need to turn there. We don't have time to go there, but I'll just recap it. A lot of people are wondering who Jesus is. Do you remember that? And Jesus asks his disciples, well, who do you think that I am? You remember that? And so they tell him, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets. He says, okay, that's fine. But who do you say that I am? He wants to know, right? Do you remember it's Peter that answers? Peter says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's that's his answer. You're the Messiah, God's son. That's an incredible answer. And, and, and he's spot on. And Jesus says something pretty amazing to him. This is what he says. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. There's no way that you got that from flesh and blood Simon, God has revealed that truth to you. I am the Christ. I am the son of living God. And that is an amazing truth that only God can reveal. And so you're blessed, right? That's what he's saying. And then he says this cryptic thing that everyone loves to take and run off to left field with. It says this verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against me. So he says, Uh, you're Peter. And then so people go, oh, so he's built the whole church on Peter. But listen to what he says. And I also say that you are Peter. Isn't that a strange phrase for Jesus to say? Did Jesus not know his name was Peter? Did Peter not know his name was Peter? And I also say that you're Peter. Thank you, Jesus, for clearing that up. What is he doing here? He says, and I say that you are Peter Petros, a small stone but on this stone, on this rock, on this Petra, on this boulder of truth, that's what I'm going to build my church on. What is he talking about? He's like, you're a small stone, right? But what you just said, that boulder of truth, that's what I'm going to build my church on. The church is built upon the declaration of all mankind that have come to the point of, of revelation by God to say, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. It's through you who have, I have everlasting life, forgiveness of sins, redemption. That's how the church is built not on a man, not on Peter. In fact, you remember Jesus gives a similar illustration in a, in a parable in Matthew chapter seven, verse 24, that parable of the wise man and the foolish man. He says this in verse 24, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, the Petra, the boulder, the rocky ground, right? The one who listens to me and and builds on that, that's that's the true foundation. In fact, let me go further with this because it's so important we understand what our foundation is. Scripture uses another rock phrase for Jesus. It's chief cornerstone. You've heard that one, haven't you? Chief cornerstone. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, he says this, "'Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners,' but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, here's the whole building kind of analogy again, but we see that that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Now, what is he saying here? Jesus is the corner, foundation, stone of the church. And when Paul says here that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he, it doesn't mean that the church is built on those men. He's saying that he's built upon what they laid. Does that make sense? The foundation they laid, which is Jesus Christ and him being the cornerstone of that foundation. In fact, Paul clearly says, I laid the foundation. I, I'm not the foundation, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Any church built upon human philosophy or a religious system is doomed for failure because it has no suitable foundation. It just will not last. It's going to collapse. Its foundation, if it's not on Jesus Christ, it's not really a church. They may call themselves a church. They're not really a church. The true church of Jesus Christ is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And some say, well, how important is the foundation really? Well, just think about the analogy he's making. How important is the foundation, right? How important is the foundation of your home that you're sitting in right now? Think about it. I mean, think about when you're laying that foundation. I mean, if they don't begin right, it's not gonna end right, right? You've got to start right to end right. If you start wrong, On a foundation, that's very hard, nearly impossible to get it right afterwards. God's kingdom is built upon Jesus Christ, and everyone must build then on that foundation, or the building is doomed for failure. But one can build on the foundation of Jesus, and he can do it in an unworthy manner, and he can do it with worthless materials. So, what Paul is doing here is he's setting up this very clear distinction that You've got to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, this church has been established on that foundation, the church in Corinth. It is, it is on the foundation of Jesus Christ, which Paul himself laid, and then Apollos watered, and here is the results which God brought. God brought the increase. These are believers, although they're acting carnally, and they're building on that same foundation, but they're building in an unworthy manner because they're carnal, right? We talked in depth about this last week and they're using worthless materials. So Paul is going to talk about the materials next. That's the third aspect of the building here. You have the master builder, you have the foundation and here in verse 12, the materials. Let's look at them. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, stop right there. This is just listing the materials for a second, Okay. And this section should make a lot more sense now that we kind of see the context of what we're talking about. Some Christians are looking at this foundation of Jesus Christ. They come to build with the most precious materials available, gold, silver, precious stones, right? They see the foundation of Jesus. They see what he's done for their life, and they just want to build something beautiful, something nice for him. Others, like the Corinthians here, are building with uh, wood, hay, and straw, right? They're they're building those thatched-roofed mud huts that you go find out at Saint Fagans at the, the the Welsh Museum there, right? You, you you've been there, you've seen those. I mean, that's the materials there. You got a wood sort of frame, you got the hay that goes into the mud to make the bricks, and you got the straw for the thatched roof. Right? Those are the two materials there. And now I know those are still standing to today. Uh, there, but stay with me with the analogy that Paul is laying. He's talking about the, the 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 lasting nature of these materials and the value of those materials. But I want to be clear about something. Materials themselves, okay, hear me, do not represent your wealth or maybe your financial ability to build something nice for Jesus. It's not as if your finances, some of you, have allowed you then to build with gold and silver and precious stones. But some of you who just don't have uh, that same financial situation are forced to build with wood and hay and straw. No, it's not speaking about that. Nor does it speak about your talents and your spiritual uh, gifts because the Lord gives those to you to use for Him. It also doesn't speak about the, um, just the opportunity as if some have the opportunity to build for Jesus, but then others just never got the opportunity. No, all believers are building something. All of you. It doesn't matter what official ministry you have been given by your church, you are building something. And the reason is the materials here represent our response to Christ, our heartfelt response to Him, how well we really serve the Lord. In other words, they represent our works. I just lost you. I know that. I lost a little bunch. Oh, you said the works word. Christianity is not based on works. We're we're saved by something else. You're absolutely right. Boy, you caught me on that one. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 so that we can look at that. Ephesians chapter 2, because boy, we don't want to be wrong about where works fit in in Christianity. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Turn in your Bibles there. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There it is, right? You have salvation by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that you're not boasting. So absolutely, we are not saved by works, but we are created for them. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, Christians, you've got to understand that distinction. We're not saved by them, Paul says, but boy, you sure were created for them. You're his workmanship. There's that picture again, like this workmanship, this wonderful building, this this thing that he is putting together. You're his workmanship. And because you are, he is really trying to fashion something beautiful. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works. In fact, that was all planned and prepared beforehand that you would walk in those good works. The distinction is, in Christianity, is that we're not saved by um, grace alone plus works. That's Catholicism. We're saved by grace alone. Full stop. That's it, right? Works are just the, uh, the result of our salvation. And so the whole idea is here, your works, what, what are your works amounting to? Now that you've been saved, what, what are they looking like? What are you building? Some are using the precious best materials, gold, silver, precious stones. Some are using the poorest materials available, wood, hay, and straw. Now listen, the materials themselves are not sinful materials, right? These can be useful. Uh, you can build something with wood, hay, and straw. As I said, you can go and see some of those structures, right? But they're not all valued the same way, are they? Some are, are building with hay, but they really think they're building with silver, right? They, they, there's day in and day out. And I think such was the case with the Corinthians there. Those milkers, right? Those ones who were only on milk Paul wanted to give them solid food to eat, but they still weren't able to to eat solid food. They hadn't cut their spiritual teeth yet. They were still so immature. They were ignorant of spiritual truths and spiritual uh, doctrinal truths that they couldn't even uh, uh, absorb and digest the true meat. They're milkers. And so a lot of times those milkers, they're often the, the hayers as well, right? The strawers, the ones that are building with those poor materials. And the reason is because of their ignorance They've created their own criteria for how the Lord evaluates their work. Well, all I have to do is, uh, is, is come to church, observe the sacraments, you know. Maybe for them, come to church is just twice a year, Easter and Christmas. Right? They, they've created their own, well, this is how God's going to judge my works, my faithfulness. And they think they're, they're building with this wonderful silver, but they're really building with hay. And it's just going to go away. Let me just give you, if I could... The criteria for how the Lord's going to evaluate what you are building. We don't see it directly in this passage, but we do see it in associated passages, and certainly one that's in the context of what Paul's talking about here. Three criteria for how you should build your building. And number one, you should have right motives. It's the motivation of the heart, right? That's what God is going to be looking at right motives. In fact, it comes from just a few verses later in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, but I have it on the screen for you, okay? We'll be there in just a, a week or two. He says this, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. You see that? The Lord's going to come. We can't judge anything before that time because you can't really judge someone else's works. You, you don't know what value it truly has in God's eyes. You, you can't do that. It's actually not for men to judge. God's going to judge it. When the Lord comes, He's going to bring to light the hidden things, even the counsels of the hearts, the, the motivation behind what they were building. And He says, and then each one's praise will come from God. Praise isn't going to come before then. It'll come after then. And listen, a lot of people are going to be surprised about what kind of praise they receive. They might be expecting a lot more than they got. I mean, you you could be a, a, a just a generous giver, right, financially, but really be doing it reluctantly or under compulsion. Well, the Lord says I got to tithe ten percent, which isn't really accurate anyway. But I got to do this, and well, guess what? You're you're building with wood. You you could be serving in a ministry and you can do it week in and week out, but you could do it without joy. Well, that's hey. You could just be going to church and say, that's my duty. I just must go to church. In fact, you could be the super spiritual ones that say, no, no, it's twice on Sunday. (laughs) I go on in the morning and the evening. God's certainly going to look on that and say, wow, what have you been building? Is he? Listen, a lot of people are super active in churches, doing all kinds of of things, but maybe the motivation is not really right, right? What what kind of motivation is in your heart for what you're building? The second criteria is the proper conduct, and that comes from the other passage that has to do with the judgment seat of Christ. We already looked at it. It was 2 Corinthians 5.10. We won't put it up there again, but if you remember that passage, it specifically says that that everyone 's going to receive the things um, in, done in the body according to what he 's done, whether good or bad, and that really speaks about their their conduct. How did you do those uh, things? W- how did you conduct yourself in those in those things? What kind of attitudes did you did you have even outwardly in those in those attitudes I, I've dealt with all kinds of ranges of attitudes over the years in, in ministry of, of people in ministry of different conduct in their ministry. And I, I just would say, you know, there's such a range there. Um, God's going God's to ultimately be the one to judge all that and say, you know, was that really the proper conduct in which I wanted my worker, my server to be, to be building in his kingdom? Is that, is that what I saved you for? Is that, is that how that looks? Well, he's going to judge the conduct there. We have the right motives, right? Got to have that. But also outwardly, the conduct uh, better match up as well. The third area is effective service. So the right motives, the proper conduct and effective service. Now, what do I mean by effective service? What I, I don't mean is, is results because you just look at the ministry of Jeremiah, right? Uh, you can look at the ministry of, of, of many missionaries over the years. We, we've been reading through missionaries, um, you know, biographies all, all, all through the year. And it's just incredible. Uh, some of them had great flourishing ministries, uh, some not as great, um, but it's not the results. In fact, what did Paul already said? He said, well, it's God who gives the increase. He, he's the one that does that. So I don't mean the results, effective service. What is effective service? How do you know that your service is effective? Because we as Christians, we evaluate by the results, don't we? We try something out in a Christian. We come up in a, in a church. We come up with a new program, and then they, they test the program. They say, oh, you want to see a lot of results. So that wasn't effective. You have all kinds of mega churches all over the world, specifically of these mega churches in the States right? 13,000 in attendance in a stadium. Is that, was that man, that preacher, is his service effective because the seats are full? Effective service has to do with being built upon the right foundation, which means we're teaching the right foundation, the the, the foundation of Jesus Christ, and using the best materials coming from the best motivations there, and using the gifts of, of, of the Spirit that God has given us, using those gifts Listen, if God has given you the gift of preaching and you go preach and never, never convert one person, you have had effective service. If God has given you the, 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 the gift of, of, uh, of, of evangelism that way, same, same as well, right? You, you don't have to base it on the, the results. Effective service is using your gifts for the glory of, of, of God on, built on that right foundation. So those are three criteria that we don't often use in the church or even in the world today, but, but God is going to use to, to ensure that we are, we are serving Him in the right way with those materials. But let's get on to the next point. You have the materials there, but now you have the test. So we come to the great test at this judgment seat in verse 13. It kind of continues the thought from verse 12. So I'll back up to 12 again. It says, now, if anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now this is very important to understand. I want to make clear what Paul is saying here. What is the fire going to do according to this verse? Just look at it yourself. What's it going to do? Test each one's work. You see that? That's what the fire is doing. It will test each one's work. In fact, their work will be revealed by fire. Okay, so it's going to test it. It will reveal what kind of work it is. In fact, that's the quality of the work. It's not the quantity, the quality of the work, what sort it is. And the day will declare it. Now, what day? Well, the day of judgment, the day Christ comes not to punish, but to reward as a righteous judge. That's the day that Paul looked forward to. In 2 Timothy 4, 8, he said this, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's the day, notice he puts it there too, that that judge, the righteous judge, is going to give to me that crown of righteousness. That's the reward. Paul's looking forward to that. But the rewards will be given according to what we've truly built, and the fire is going to test what we built. Is it real? Is it, is it lasting? What will last out of those precious materials that we saw? You can clearly see these two groups, can't you? the gold, the silver, the precious stones. Those will last through the fire. What won't last through the fire? The wood, the hay, and the straw. That's going to burn right up, right? The fire is going to test what kind of materials that you have been using. Many people, I think, are deceived. They think they're just serving God and they're doing it in uh, with the greatest materials, but they're actually doing it in an unworthy manner and they're using worthless materials. Materials. I never forget. We got to go to the Westminster Abbey for the Evensong service last year with the uh, the team from Grace Chapel, and uh, we got there just a little bit late, so we we did walk in in the in the middle of it. So I'll acknowledge that minor disruption, but we quickly took our seats and we got the booklets out and and uh, you know it's it's quite different from what we're used to here at Calvary Chapel, right? There's a response aspect of that, and they say something, we respond a certain way, and then there's you know, certain things you've got to read and it's just sort of formulaic, right? You've got to lay out what's all new to us and we're in our books and it was clear that, that we were newbies. I didn't say it that way, right? That we hadn't been there. And I will tell you the looks, right? The judgment from the people around us, right? Here they are in this magnificent building built for the glory of God and kind of like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. It was just this kind of, you know, attitude around us. And I was just thinking, wow, you know, these people are so deceived right? A lot of them are. They're, they're just coming here like, I'm doing my duty. I'm saying these things, I, and I do it all the time, and you clearly, you know, haven't done these things, and it's just building, 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 building from worthless materials, and it's all going to be burned up. They're going to get to this point and realize that it's all been for nothing. They actually haven't been building anything worthwhile, nothing that, that God is going to be, you know, excited about, some people literally go like, ah, look, I built a mud hut. Aren't you excited, God? Uh, it's going to be burned up. That's the picture here. And then it goes in to the workers who are building, and it'll expand on this idea here, but the workers come up in verses 14 through 17. But let's um, break this down a bit because as you look at these workers, I think you see the three types of workers here really corresponding to the three men that Paul has already mentioned in this, in this uh, section in chapter 3 and chapter 2 he's mentioned the natural man, hasn't he? Do you remember what the natural man is? He's the man without the spirit. He's the unconverted, the unredeemed, the, the unregenerate, the unbeliever, the non-Christian, right? That's the natural man. There's the spiritual man in his position, the spiritual man who has the spirit. And then there's the carnal man. And the carnal man is the, the, the people in the Corinth who, who are spiritual, spiritual positionally, right? But they're acting carnally. In fact, remember he says, I'd like to talk to you as as if you're spiritual, but I can't. I really have to talk to you as as if you're carnal. Do You remember that? Or as if you're natural, because you're not acting like, like that. I think you see these three here as we look into this. Let's look at verse 14. This is the spiritual man. Verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Now, I get the idea of spiritual a little bit different here. Again, this is not positionally. The carnal are spiritual positionally. I think this spiritual man is practically, in practice, right? His practice is matching his position. That's the whole idea in this uh, book. He is building with materials that will last. In fact, notice that verses 14 and 15 both read the same phrase, if anyone's work. They both say that, right? If anyone's work, Um, That confirms that it's the workmanship that's being tested, not you as a Christian. That's very, very important. It's the workmanship because Roman Catholics use this passage and this one alone to enforce the teaching of purgatory, which is a man-made idea. Purgatory does not exist in Scripture. In fact, I just watched a seven-minute video this week where the priest took us to this passage and said, see, look at here it is, here's purgatory. He said, there's these three things about purgatory that are true, that there exists some kind of place, some kind of realm, that's a place of final purification, where the believer must finally be purified, because yes, you've been forgiven of sins in Jesus, but as you remain here on earth, you still have sin, don't you? And you still do sin in this temporal place, and so that sin can't be carried into the the next world. There's got to be an in-between place where the sin's purified out of you, and which leads to their second point, and that process of purification is is painful, or at least very uncomfortable, (laughs) is what they say. And then the third point is that the prayers of those on earth can really uh, assist those that are going through purgatory. That doesn't come from this passage, the first two points do. Um, That comes from a book, not in our Bible, 2 Maccabees. But the point is here, that nowhere in this passage do we see the fire being used to purify the person? The fire is clearly being used to test the workmanship, the work. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. In fact, I want to go back to that word test because I think it it's helpful here when it had the word test in verse 13. The word test is dokimazo because it's going to be Tested by fire. Tested means examined or proved or deemed worthy. That's the word test. The fire is examining, testing what you've built. It's not testing you, it's what you've built. And it says, if his work endures or remains, the word is meno, he will receive a reward. What kind of reward? Well, the Bible mentions in several places that believers will be rewarded. With crowns, Paul has already mentioned one of them in Second Timothy four eight. Right, he said it was the crown of righteousness that was waiting for him. It was laid up for him, the crown of righteousness. And the crown of righteousness is for those who are really just remain faithful until Jesus comes. That's the crown of righteousness in Second Timothy four eight. There is in First Corinthians nine twenty five the incorruptible crown, and that is for those faithful um, to Scripture who remain obedient to Scripture. There is an incorruptible crown, 1 Corinthians 9.25. Then there's the crown of rejoicing. That's found in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20. It's for those who who win souls, right? The crown of rejoicing. There's the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4, and that is for faithful pastors. And there is the crown of life that you find in James 1.12, and that's for all who love Jesus sacrificially. So you have these crowns described in, in the Bible, and I believe here in verse 14, if your work endures once the fire has tested and there's work still standing, then you receive a reward. Now, listen, just because wood, hay, and stubble have been built uh, doesn't mean there aren't patches of silver or gold or some precious stones tucked in there. It's the famous seat judgment of believers. I believe everybody will receive some reward to some level. It may mostly be gone. There might just be one small patch there, but it'll be something. And it will be there. And he says, if it endures, if it gets through the fire, if it remains past that point, boy, there's going to be reward for you. I believe that's a spiritual man. Honestly, I do. I think the one that's really, truly building, uh, matching his, his, his position and practice the right way, building with valuable materials that will last, that will honor the Lord, you'll receive reward. But then I really think you have sort of the picture of the carnal man. Because remember, this is all motivation for them. He wants to motivate them to stop their divisiveness and, and, you know, start building God's kingdom instead of, you know, splitting the kingdom. Well, you see the carnal man in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as to fire. So here, remember that the carnal man is still a Christian. They just are governed by the flesh, aren't they? And those governed by the flesh probably aren't particularly concerned about what they're building for Christ. They could be sincere. They could be hardworking. They could be, you know, mean well, but they've just not judged their materials by the standard of God's word because they're still ignorant. Remember, that's the whole idea of carnality. They're, they're, they're ignorant of those truths. And so they're, they're not looking at the right motives and the proper conduct and the, the effective service. They're not looking at things those ways. And so there really is a warning here to this carnal man in verse 15. If the stuff is burned up, you're going to suffer loss. Suffer what kind of loss? Well, 2 John 1.8 gives us a clue. It says this, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. There's a warning. Don't don't lose the things you worked for. You could lose that reward. You could end up burning, uh, burning it all down because you just replaced it all with wood, hay, and stubble because the carnal mind, the fleshy mind, uh, that Christian, he's going to suffer loss, meaning the loss of everything he built. You think about that. You think about getting to heaven and like all you've lived for and there, and you get to that judgment seat because you just haven't been thinking about the judgment seat. You haven't been thinking about uh, eternity in that way. You just been thinking about, I get to go to heaven, right? For, you know, we, a lot of people do that. It's just salvation. It's just fire insurance. At least I don't get to go to hell. And and but they've done nothing at all for Jesus. They're going to be in for a shock. You're going to suffer loss. Everything you thought was important is going to be burnt down. There's not going to be anything left. And so he says they'll suffer loss in that way, not physically. The Catholic Church says, see, there it is. He's going to suffer loss. He's going to suffer. So it's a painful place. He's going to suffer. No, it's it's painful because he lost everything. Everything he thought his life was about just went up in smoke. It's gone. It says he will be saved, but as through fire, everything around him was burning up. There's this great conflagration, flames all around him, and it's as if he's just plucked out of that smoke. Amos uses that same idea. It's not unfamiliar in scripture. You were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. That's the idea there. Listen, that's the carnal man, the carnal church. Carnality in the church is dangerous because it can mislead others to build with worthless materials as well. Because a lot of times we judge what we're doing by what others are doing, don't we? Well, well, they're not doing much, or well, they're building with this. And so we just sort of blindly follow in ignorance and continue to build up with worthless things. I think that's why it's so important that Paul is addressing the root issue of carnality, because they're going to cheat themselves out of their reward. In fact, he says that to the Colossians in Colossians 2.18, let no one cheat you, of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. There's the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, right? They're puffed up. That's the Corinthian church. They're vain. There's no humility there. And because that's the case, you're, you're, you're cheating yourselves of your reward. You've got to be careful there. So it's a warning to the carnal Christian, that if you continue building this way, it's all going to be gone. You're going to suffer loss and it will. you will suffer then. It may not seem important now. It will later. In fact, you'll see that in a bit. But then you have verses 16 and 17. I think this is a warning to the natural man, or at least maybe, maybe a warning to the church about the natural man. Remember, that's the unconverted man. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Before Paul mentions the final worker here, he reminds the Corinthians about the building that they're building. Because he said, you're God's building, didn't he? But now he says, you're actually a temple. You're a temple. In fact, each of them aren't just building the temple. They are God's temple because God's spirit dwells in them. Have you ever thought about that? That is an amazing verse. I remember the first time I memorized that verse. It was just such a humbling thing to think about. I am his temple because he dwells in me. So your body is the temple. What kind of temple are you keeping for him? That's the idea. He's like, you, you're you building something even with unholy instruments because of the, the, the temple. But listen, you've got to have a holy instrument. You've got to have a holy temple. God's spirit dwells in you. So I think he says this to soften the blow to those who maybe have been building with those worthless materials. And he's reminding them, like, listen, you're you're his temple. But I think it's also a severe warning to that third group of workers, the natural man. You might say the natural man, he works on the, builds on the foundation of Christ. Oh, a lot of, a lot of them pretend to. A lot of them think they are building on the foundation of Christ, but they're in fact destroying it and defiling it. Look at verse 17. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. This is definitely not a warning to those redeemed because God will never destroy those who are redeemed. Never. We covered that. It's been a long time at that the beginning, right? You are not any longer judged for your sin. It's been taken care of. No, this is a warning to those who seek to infiltrate the church and defile it, to bring it harm. To those who really aren't building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Well, listen, God's not going to allow that to stay. God's temple must remain holy. And Paul spoke against these kind of people in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. He said, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Yeah, false people coming in pretending to be believers and uh, wanted to bring us back into the bondage of the law again. No, you can't be a believer if you're not following this law. You can't be a believer if you're not circumcised and trying to bring them back into bondage, building the foundation, replacing it with works rather than Christ. We have to remain watchful and diligent. Remember, Jesus even warns His church Himself, doesn't He? In Revelation chapter 3, He warns the church in Philadelphia, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Right? That's what He's saying, which is a severe... Warning! It's a terrible thought. It even brings up the idea, like, "Well, I could lose a crown," because what could happen is I could I could stop building with those precious materials completely and start building with something else, or I could start building on a on a whole other foundation. But we've got to remain um, uh, fixed on the foundation of Jesus Christ and building with those precious materials. Because, listen, brothers and sisters, we're going to face that that time where Jesus is going to see us face to face, and He's going to reward us. And listen, you might be listening today and saying, well, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but listen, what's the big deal? Like, at least I get to go to heaven, right? That's a lot of times the idea. Isn't the goal just salvation? Don't we just want people to get saved, and we don't want them to go to hell, and we we just focus on that, right? And and that's a lot of times, I think, our motivation is we just don't want to deal with the things of this earth anymore. Our motivation is, ah, just at least I won't have any pain or won't have any sorrow. Maybe our motivation is I'm just lonely and I want to be reunited with those lost loved ones. Maybe that's the motivation. Paul doesn't use those things. He says, no, the motivation needs to be there's a crown for you. And you might be going, well why is the crown so important? Because listen, if the goal then for you is to get to heaven, let me just ask you, what's going on in heaven? Can I just take you to heaven by way of closing? Let me take you to Revelation chapter four. Because listen, I do believe a lot of people are not being prepared for their future. My job is not to prepare you for that judgment seat. That's his thing. Jesus is taking care of that. He's the rewarder. My job is to prepare you for worship in heaven. Your future eternal state is, is an eternity of worship. That is what you're looking forward to or at least you should be. And if I could just give you a glimpse of heaven here in Revelation 4 to let you see what's happening there, what's really happening, then maybe you might understand a little bit more Paul's motivation for encouraging them to pursue those crowns. Revelation chapter 4. Indulge me, I'm gonna read a lot of this just by way of close, but it's a wonderful picture of heaven. Verse one, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, I believe the 24 elders to be representative of the church because they're clothed in the white robes of the redeemed, and they're wearing the crowns of reward by their Savior because this is in heaven, and this is after Jesus has taken them to be with him. Verse 5 And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature, like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, "'Holy, holy, holy, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come.' Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, get this, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Do you see that, church? The church there is going to look at those crowns and look at God and say, nope, you're worthy. Nope, nope, it's your glory. no, it's your honor. no, it's your power. You created all this stuff. Now listen, I would it not be a tragic thing to see that taking place and to reach up to and there's no crown there's there's nothing to toss at the feet of Almighty God and say it's you you've done all this. It's like being invited to a party without the right surprise gift right everyone brought one but you, and I know it seems um like for 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 you right now living in this temporal earth, right? It just doesn't seem real. It's why it's so important for you to soak up scripture because this is where it becomes real. You begin to see like that's my future. That's where I'm going. And listen, if heaven is in your future, then worship is in your future. And there's going to be a time of worship where we will all be casting our crowns before him, recognizing that we're not worthy of these things at all. I mean, thank you Jesus for giving these to me, but boy, they all go right back to you. Can I just offer you that motivation? Paul looks at these Corinthian believers. He loves them. They're carnal acting. Their, their practice isn't matching up with their position. He says, listen, listen, you're building something precious for the Lord. I mean, aren't you just thankful for the Lord? Build something precious for him, something lasting. And guess what? He's going to reward you. But listen, we don't do it just because we're going to get some reward, right? The motivation is, oh, I'm so grateful for what he's done, and then he's going to give us this reward, and then all we're going to do in the future, we're just going to give it right back to him. Church, I I want you to be part of that. I want to be part of that. Let's remain faithful to him. Let's examine our lives. Let's make sure we're building, we're building with good materials that will last for his glory. Let me pray. God in heaven, I thank you so much for your word, and Lord, for this passage that uh, Lord, speaks so clearly about this very important event in the future lives of all believers. And Lord, I think it's a part that's missed, that is not uh, emphasized in in our, our teachings or maybe even our gospel presentations. It certainly isn't followed up very often. And people tend to think it's just about going to heaven. It's just about eternal life. It's just about no more pain, no more sorrow. It's just about being reunited. Listen, all those things are icing on the cake. We do get those things. But what we're primarily doing in heaven is we are worshiping you, Lord God. And I just pray that we as Christians would be prepared for that future. Lord, help me as a pastor to prepare your people for that future. We are worshipers at heart. And Lord, we need to prepare to be worshipers for all eternity. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. Thank you for just blessing us with, uh, Lord, this this passage from Paul. And I pray, Lord, that we would look deeply within ourselves and seek to apply the truths that we've learned today. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.